Thanks for listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. You can learn more about our church by visiting cornerstonetulsa.org. There you can read all about our journey through the year of the Bible. We gather every Sunday morning at 9.30 and 11 o'clock, and we'd love for you to join us. If we can help you in any way, you can reach us at hello at cornerstonetulsa.org. With that, let's hop into today's teaching. King Solomon was greater in riches and wisdom than all the other kings of the earth. The whole world sought audience with Solomon to hear the wisdom God had put in his heart. Year after year, everyone who came brought a gift articles of silver and gold, robes, weapons, spices, and horses and mules. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidoans, Hittites. They were from nations about which the Lord has told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. He followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely as David his father had done. Dear Lord, let us pray to our church to to understand John's word and obey. Look for opportunities that we can help others in small ways in the coming week. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You can be seated. Ahead lies the Arctic shore, and beyond the sea. And still the little animals surge forward. Their frenzy takes them tumbling down the terraced cliffs, creating tiny avalanches of sliding soil and rocks, and seemingly indestructible lemmings. is the last chance to turn back. Yet over they go, casting themselves bodily out into space. obviously see where I'm going with this, right? (laughs) Okay, did anybody catch what the little critter was? Not guinea pigs. A lemming. I never knew what a lemming was before this. I didn't know they were little hamster-like creatures. And with the music, lemmings. Uh, 
Lemmings are a funny little critter. I love, this is the first video I found, and I thought, this is totally appropriate for my sermon. Uh, lemmings are, a, a, as an animal, a little cultural metaphor for fools who follow other fools to their own destruction. And it turns out that the metaphor is not completely precise because the, metaf- the uh, lemmings are not committing mass suicide here. Evidently, what they're doing here, this is a part of a migratory pattern where when the land becomes overpopulated with lemmings, they will seek a new space, and so they'll go off the cliffs into the water. Now, yes, most of them die in the process, drowning and from the fall, but they're seeking out a new land to populate. That caveat aside, I think the metaphor remains. In life, don't be a lemming. Don't be a lemming. Don't be like them. And uh, in Jason's, the text that Jason read this morning, we hear about King Solomon. And uh, Solomon, you know, known for being one of the, the wisest people to ever live. Solomon, who's the son of King David, who we just met briefly last week in our sermon. And if you don't know, as a church, we're reading through the entire Bible together this year. And so last week we preached on our, our reading that had been uh, 1 Samuel 17, David and Goliath. We're skipping right ahead to his son Solomon. And Solomon... Is, uh, has kind of a shady background. He is the child of King David and a woman with whom he had a forced affair, uh, Bathsheba. David flexed his muscles and, and abused his power and killed off Bathsheba's husband, Uriah the Hittite. And Solomon uh, was the, the product of that relationship of David and the woman with whom he, he, you could say he raped her, he forced her into an affair. It's hard to say no to the king. So Solomon becomes king, the son of David, under rather nefarious, uh, kind of of like a shady background. But Solomon does become king. Um, His father had had this aspiration to build a temple for God in Jerusalem, but God said uh, to David, no, you're not going to do it. Your son is going to do it. In spite of his background, God was going to use him. He figured prominently in God's plans. And so Solomon builds the temple. As Solomon is just beginning to be king, God appears to Solomon and says, look, in a dream, says, whatever you want, just ask for me and I'll give it to you. And of all the things that he could have asked for, uh, Solomon asked that he'd have a wise and discerning heart so that he could distinguish right from wrong and so that he could govern the people of Israel. And in a moment where he could have asked for anything for himself, he asked for wisdom. And God, as you can imagine, is delighted with this response, and God answers his prayer. And Solomon becomes known as a man of wisdom. People came from all directions to hear from him. He had broad knowledge about things like plants and farming and animal life. He was like a a know-it-all kind of amazing figure. And people came to seek audience with him. They wanted to be around him, especially as he dispersed these nuggets of wisdom called Proverbs. And Proverbs we'll cover as a book later in the year, but maybe you've heard some famous little like soundbite bits of wisdom. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. Solomon, he's full of wisdom. And so people came to him to listen. And as a result of these people seeking him out, Solomon grew in power. Influencers wanted to be around him. Kings of other nations wanted to be around him. He grew in power. And as each of these people came, they brought gifts. Earlier in chapter 10 of 1 Kings, talks about just the amount of gold that Solomon gained from all these foreign uh, visitors. He, he grew in power. He grew in wealth. He was like King Midas. Everything that he touched 
uh, turned to gold. His, his house it was just covered in gold. And as a result of his power and as a result of his wealth, he had the opportunity to make a, a large number of political alliances. So kings of other countries would come to Solomon and say, let's make a treaty together. And one of the common ways they would sign the deal on that treaty was through marriage. And so Solomon had unrestrained opportunity for sex. And so he married 700 royal wives, which is very unwise of Solomon. He added to that, because 700 evidently was not enough for him, another 300 concubines. And so he has 1,000 women in his harem. He has exploded in popularity, grown in power, grown in wealth, uh, grown in opportunity for, for sexual relationships. And as a, as a result of this, the scriptures draw a, a, a straight line from those relationships to idolatry. Because Solomon began to, as he developed these relationships and aged, he started to worship the gods of these other nations, of his wives. But none of this should have come as a surprise to those of us who've been paying attention to the message of scripture so far. Because Moses, at the end of Deuteronomy, he's with the people on the edge of the promised land, and he's just calling shots about what's about to happen, how things are going to go down. And so in Deuteronomy chapter 17, Moses warns the Israelites about the day when they ask for a king. Deuteronomy 17, when you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you, and you've taken possession of it and settled in it, you'll say, hey, let's set a king over us like all the nations around us. Be sure when that happens to appoint over you a king the Lord your God chooses. The king must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord's told you, you are not to go back that way again. He must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray and he must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. And it's almost like this was written with Solomon in mind. Horses and horses from Egypt, check. Gold, check. Tons of wives, Check. Leading to idolatry? Check. It fits him to a T. God had warned on the whole the nation of Israel that when you have a king, avoid these kind of behaviors. But not only that, God appeared to Solomon himself and gave him some stern warnings about how he used his power and how he held the office of the king. 1 Kings chapter 9. As for you, said God to Solomon, if you walk before me faithfully with integrity of heart and uprightness, as David your father did, and if you do all I command and observe my decrees and laws, I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever. But if you or your descendants turn away from me and do not observe the commands and the decrees I've given you, and you go off to serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land I've given them. I will reject this temple that I've consecrated for my name, Israel will become a byword and an object of ridicule among all peoples. This temple will become a heap of rubble. All who pass by will be appalled and will scoff and say, Why has the Lord done such a thing to this land and to the temple? And people will answer, It's because they have forsaken the Lord their God who brought their ancestors out of Egypt. They've gotten the general command through Moses in Deuteronomy, but God appears to Solomon in particular, and he says, look, things will go great for you if you follow my instruction, but if you don't, it's going to be uh, disastrous. 
And it foreshadows what would happen in the year 587 B.C. when the, the army of the empire of Babylon would march in and destroy the wall at Jerusalem, destroy the temple, set fire to the city, and take from the city all of their leaders back to Babylon and scattered, scattered them in the diaspora. Because they would not follow, and Solomon set this advice, all of his, all of his descendants and the kings after him, nearly all of them would follow in his steps. And the Solomon narrative kind of sobers you up. Because if you think, if a guy like Solomon who starts so well ends poorly, what hope is there for any of us? And it demonstrates for us that there's a gap between knowing right and wrong. Solomon asked for the ability to discern right from wrong. He got that. But there's a gap between knowing right and wrong and having the moxie to pull the trigger on doing what is right. There's a difference between being able to prescribe wisdom to other people and practicing that wisdom in your private life. And all of us have seen examples of, of leaders and often priests and pastors who have prescribed wisdom, who have stood before you just like I'm standing before you and taught the scriptures and, and maybe cast an image of their own identity and yet privately behaved so poorly and dishonored God's name and hurt a ton of people in the process. It's way easier to stand up with a microphone and try to inspire or to teach than to practice this stuff in real life. And what's so sad is that Solomon's destruction and demise was so pathetically predictable. The areas where he struggled are the areas where all of us struggle today. That despite Solomon's wisdom, he turned out to be just another lemming, just one more person going over the cliff following everyone who went before them with unrestrained affection for money and for sex and for power. Solomon destroyed himself and led himself to idolatry. The result of this for the nation was exile. So think about this, man, Solomon really freaks me out. David freaks me out too because he started so well. And as a young man, a young pastor, uh, I want to not only start well and not only finish well, but I want to middle well too. I want to, I want to do this whole thing, doing the right things in the right way for the right reasons. And, and you want that for yourself too. I want that for you too. We want, to, we want to, at the end of our lives, be, be proud and grateful to God for all that he's done and, and thankful to God that he's given us the grace to cooperate with it. We don't want to end in disgrace. Luckily, we serve a God who gives a million chances. As we've seen with Israel so far in the year of the Bible, again and again and again, he extends mercy while they're rebellious. And you may have blown it royally and publicly. Or maybe you have your own struggles that nobody else knows about. God, ours is a God of resurrection. Ours is a God of renewal who gives mercy even to people like you and me. But I believe that God's desire is not for us to learn everything the hard way. Wouldn't that be amazing is if we and our children didn't have to learn the hard way by going into a prodigal season but never knew a season when they weren't walking with Jesus? Don't we want that for our kids, the kids of our church? But reality is that we screw up. We all stumble in many ways, says the Scripture. How do we deal with that? There's a text in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. It says, No temptation has seized you except what is common to mankind. And God's faithful. He won't let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he'll also provide a way out so that you can endure it. When I was a teenager and struggling with the things that teenagers struggle with, I used to think about this scripture like a panic button 
like you're in the middle of temptation and you're about to give in, but if you press the button, God gives you a way out and you don't have to have temptation anymore. And I've found, and maybe you've found, that it doesn't really seem to work that way. A lot of the time you press that panic button and you're still left with the choice of whether to do right or whether to do wrong. Think, so how do we make sense of this scripture? And how does the scripture speak to us, have bearing for us in this conversation about the well-worn path of the lemmings, about all of us who are given to temptation and to struggle uh, in these predictable ways like money, sex, power, and idolatry? I think the scripture says at least three things to us. Uh, the first, and this, you may need to hear this as you uh, struggle privately with whatever temptation ails you, the thing you're struggling with is not unique to you. The thing you're struggling with is something that is common, it's prevalent, it's common to mankind. You're not alone in your temptation. Second thing, th this comes from the scripture, God believes that you can endure this. So you're in the middle of a trying season, you think there's absolutely no chance I can choose the path of wisdom. God believes that you can endure it. And then finally, and this is where it gives us an opportunity for hope and an opportunity as the people of God to practice a rhythm of life and to train one another to choose godliness, is that God wants to provide a way out for us so we're not destroyed by the things that ail us, that the temptations that we all face that are common to all of us don't need to be the thing that ends us. And so this morning, for the next couple of minutes, we're going to answer the question, how does the gospel train us to opt out of the path of the lemmings, especially with regard to money and sex uh, and power. And maybe just to like bring another controversial topic, should we talk about politics too? Okay, we'll not do politics this morning. I want to talk about money, sex, and power, uh, the path of the lemmings, something that everybody struggles with. First, money. We opt out of the path of the lemmings uh, with regard to our money by putting money in its proper place putting money in its proper place. There's a great metaphor right in 1 Kings that God's given us by comparing Solomon with one of his descendants, a king named Asa, who turned out to be pretty great. Solomon put all of his silver and gold into the palace of the forest of Lebanon. S Solomon was so powerful that he gave his house this name, the palace of the forest of Lebanon. And as these, as this, these gifts are coming to him, where is he stockpiling it all? He's putting it in his house, in his palace that he's made for himself. Contrast that with his descendant, King Asa. King Asa brought into the temple of the Lord all the silver and the gold and the articles that he and his father had dedicated. So retroactively taking all that stuff that his dad had acquired and bringing it into the temple. This gives us a metaphor for the proper place for our money. And this conversation matters whether, in your opinion, you have money or don't have money, because all of us have to define our relationship with money. We have to master our money so that our money doesn't master and control us. So what is the proper place for our money? If your money is in the temple of your heart, you're going to be driven by your own whims and wishes. You're going to choose first the things that make you most happy and most comfortable in this life. While Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you, yours is the other way. I'm going to seek first my own comfort, my own priorities, my own safety, my own, all of that. If your money is kept in, in the temple of your own heart, in the palace of your own heart, you're going to follow your own agenda. But if your money is in the temple, and follow me in the metaphor, if the money, all the resources, experience, wealth that God has entrusted to you are kept in the temple, 
then you're going to seek first the kingdom of God and see yourself not as an owner of those resources, but as a steward of those resources. You'll be motivated if you keep your resources, your wealth, in the temple of God to align your resources with the agenda of the kingdom of God first. If you do that, you'll know that God knows what you need and God is delighted to meet your needs. You'll keep perspective about about your money, about your abilities, about your talents. You'll remember it's God who's the one who gave me the ability to produce wealth. That's what Moses warned the people in Deuteronomy. When you get in the land, you inherit all these vineyards you didn't plant, houses you didn't build. You're going to think, aren't I awesome? But don't forget it is the Lord who gives you the ability to produce wealth. If you keep your money in the temple, you'll keep perspective on all of those and have money in its proper place. So as you think about your relationship with money, and again, whether you think you have any or don't, where, is, where do you deposit that treasury? Is, does it go first into the palace of your own heart where you get to dictate terms? Or does it go into the temple of God, its, its proper place? Do you see yourself as an owner, as the boss of all that's been entrusted to you, or do you see yourself as a steward and hold things in open hands? I think the way that we avoid the path of the lemmings with regard to our money is there are two things that we can do to put money in its proper place. First, we have to acknowledge the source of our resources. It's God who gives you the ability to produce wealth. There's this Matt Redman song that I just love. I've quoted a million times. He says, we have nothing to give that didn't first come from your hands. We have nothing to offer you that you did not provide. Every good and perfect gift comes from your kind and gracious heart. All we do is give back to you what always has been yours. Your breath is borrowed. Your life is borrowed. All of life is grace. To keep money in its proper place, we have to uh, acknowledge the source of our resources. And so when that paycheck comes in or money comes in or, or however you acquire, when you say to yourself, this is not my money. This is not my money. Second thing we do to put money in its proper place is to put your money where your heart should be. Jesus said nobody can serve God and wealth. You'll either serve, love one and hate the other. You can't serve God and wealth. You can't serve two masters. So first, put your money where your priorities or your values should be. I think one of the easiest ways in the world that we live in is we have the, the gift of automating our priorities. And so maybe you earn a paycheck and it shows up in your bank account or however it is for you. Don't let yourself cop out. We have the opportunity to automate our priorities so that as soon as it comes into us, some of it can go away from us. We get to automate our priorities. I think it's appropriate for everybody who follows Jesus to have a deliberate plan for how you steward that money. Maybe it's through a, like a percentage of giving. Uh, the, under the old covenant, the, the tithe was generally 10%. It was sometimes 13 or 15% or more, depending on the festivals. But Christians have often used a tithe as a good model. Uh, I don't hold fast to that. I don't think the New Testament demands 10% of us. I actually think it's much more rigorous. I don't think Jesus calls us for 10% of our heart or 10% of our resources, but the whole thing. Now, 10% of that or 15% of that or whatever it is, you may surrender to him, completely put it out of your control. But I think at all times, all of our life should be held in open hands so that if he calls, it is surrendered on the spot. So maybe you would decide for you to keep money in its proper place. You're going to pick a percentage of your wealth, of your income, and surrender it to God. 
Some of you may be really badly in debt and you're in a place where like, I cannot imagine doing that. So we talked about last week, I would urge you to do something. Just do something. Maybe you'd say, I'm going to start at 1% of giving and every six months or every year, I'm going to go up to two, three, four, five, six. There may be some of you who like, you earn such stupid money that 10% is like no big deal. You can do that and get a little bit of an ego boost, but God's calling you to a challenge. And maybe you would say, and we can have a conversation about this, you would say, you're going to pick a dollar amount that you're going to live on. And any amount over that is getting out of your house, getting out of your hands, because you don't want to follow the path of the limbing with regard to your money. You want to put money in its proper place. So acknowledge uh, the source of your resources and automate wisdom. Automate uh, your choices with your money. How does the gospel train us to opt out of the path of the limbing with money? Uh, we, we put money in its proper place. Second, uh, with regard to sex, how we avoid the path of the limbing with regard to sex and sexual, sexual temptation. Uh, first, we cultivate gratitude and we set boundaries. Cultivate gratitude and set boundaries. I had a, a professor at undergrad at ORU, Dr. Walker, who often presented myths of marriage or myths of having children. And one of the myths of marriage that he said was that marriage eliminates all sexual temptation. He used to think like maybe if, maybe if you know, a person gets married, they'll just magically, leave, like the opposite sex will just like disappear from their mind and their imagination. But uh, all of us who are married know like that's, that's not a reality. Or maybe you're, you're single and like you are just like struggling to be pure, to abide by your convictions. You know, the scripture says, I've made a covenant with my eyes, but you're struggling with your eyes. Uh, maybe that's you. And like, man, like setting boundaries, that is difficult. Or maybe you're a person who would say, that is not my deal. I do not struggle with sexual temptation, with looking at images, anything like that. That's just not my story. But I think that this general temptation represents a well-trod path that more of us stumble along than we might guess. Those of us who struggle with social and with relational temptations. How often have you fantasized about somebody else's uh, friendship or somebody else's marriage? How often have you like, taken for granted the friends that God has given you and you're just imagining how awesome it would be if you could be friends with that person? Or how much money or time or energy do you, do you dedicate fantasizing and thinking about the details of people that you will never meet and celebrities who do not know your name? People who, like, you're, they're never going to be part of your life, and yet you give time and energy, and you covet the knowledge of them and friendship with them. We all stumble in many ways. So how do we opt out of the path of the lemming with sexual sins, with social and relational sins? I think the first thing we do is we cultivate gratitude. So if you're a person, you're looking at this lousy lot of friends that you've got, and you're like, my goodness, I would love to do a line change and get another group here. Cultivate gratitude for the friends that God has given you, the people that God has given you. Rather than fantasizing about how awesome it would be if you could be friends with that person, be grateful for the person that God's giving you. Ask God to open up your eyes so that you can see every good and beautiful thing about them and be to that person the kind of friend that you wish others would be to you. Cultivate gratitude. If you're married and you're thinking about, you're, you're feeling a temptation toward wandering eyes, cultivate gratitude for the spouse, the person that God has given you. 
Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, talking to young Timothy about money, he gives this great antidote to temptation. He says, those who want to get rich fall into a temptation and trap and pierce themselves with many wounds. But godliness with contentment is great gain. He says, the people who have wandering eyes and hearts that are like always covetous for the next thing, they're going to harm themselves. But if you cultivate contentment, if you practice gratitude, you will shield yourself from that stumbling block of, of temptation and sin. Cultivate Gratitude. Don't obsess over the friends you don't have, over the spouse that you do not have. Cultivate gratitude. And then the second thing we can do here is to set boundaries. I took, when I was maybe like a fifth grader, sixth grader, I took a really long walk, like miles, which is just, I took really long bike rides when I was a kid. And I remember once I was out in West Tulsa and walking along the street, and in the ditch there was a dirty magazine. And like, you know, I'm fifth grade, I was like, you know, whatever a fifth grader was like. Surprised, let's go with that. And, uh, and for me, like it was something I stumbled upon. It was like a destination. It wasn't something that I had with me. Today, I feel tremendous empathy for fifth graders because you have anything that you could possibly want in the world to see or experience with these little rectangles in our pockets. And I think that many more of us than own these can actually be trusted with them. Because if you, if you struggle with looking, if you struggle with just not even looking at things that are destructive, that are just inane, that suck the life and soul out of you, we need to set boundaries with the things that we struggle with. And so if you honestly could not be trusted with unrestricted access to the internet or to social media, set boundaries that guard your soul and may save your life. Put restrictions in there and give a stranger the password so that you can't change it at a, at a weak moment. If you struggle, bring light to that dark corner of your life by telling someone, joining a support group, joining an apprentice group, renouncing shameful ways. If you can't be trusted, set boundaries. How does the gospel train us to opt out of the path of the living? Well, with money, we put it in its proper place. With sexuality, we cultivate gratitude and we set boundaries. And third, with regard to our power, uh, we clarify the purpose of our power and we cultivate a rich, secret life. I love this idea of cultivating a rich, secret life. Now, you may be thinking, I'm not a powerful person. I don't lead a company, I don't, no one looks to me to make decisions, but I would make the case that every one of us are far more powerful than you would guess. In fact, in October of last year, we preached a sermon series just on the theme of power. And we talked about power. Power is simply the ability to do stuff. You made a decision, you exercised your power by coming here today. Power is the ability to do stuff, to say stuff, to show up. Your life has been deeply shaped by the people who have exercised power in your direction. Your parents exercised a form of power, creative power, bringing you into the world. You can remember the day that someone said that word to you that changed your life, that exercise of power to encourage or to discourage. You can remember that key moment when you really needed somebody and at just the right moment they were there. All of us have power. You may not be a leader of an organization. You may not carry a microphone, but all of us have the ability to do stuff, to take meaningful action in the world. So one of the most helpful things that we could do is take an audit of our own power. What are the resources at your disposal, your time, your words, your finances, your ability to show up? How has God uniquely gifted you to exercise your power? 
Take a power audit and ask yourself to what degree is the exercise of your power advancing the kingdom of God and promoting the flourishing of other people? In just a handful of minutes, Chris is going to get up here and lead us in a conversation about foster care. Talk about a power inequality. Uh, kids who are suffering as a result of the decisions of their parents, and we, the people of God, are given the opportunity to exercise our power so that vulnerable kids can flourish. How are you stewarding your power? And with, with all use of power, whether it's for selfish or selfless reasons, there's a temptation to be too proud of ourselves and make a little God out of ourselves in the process. Which means as we're evaluating our own power, one of, the, one of the greatest things that any one of us can do is to begin to deliberately cultivate a rich, secret life. And the more public your influence, the more vital it is to have this, this rich, secret life to anchor you, or you can't stand up in, in, under the pressure. Uh, the more vital uh, your public life is, the more necessary is a rich private life of confessing your sins in private, doing stuff that shapes your character in private, giving in private, praying in private, practicing vulnerable kinds of friendships in private. And my deepest fear in ministry is that my public life will not be anchored by a rich private life. And on this, for all of us, you do not want to be that person that everyone looks up to you, admires you, because you're a person of character, but you know that there's another secret story, and we're one more limbing to fall down in the path of destruction. I don't want that to be my story, and I don't want that to be your story. And we see this so beautifully with Jesus. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, he's walking around Galilee and Judah, healing people, casting out demons. The biggest problem in his ministry was crowd control. The people are flocking to him. He's increasing in public presence and authority. And almost every time this happened, what did Jesus do when the crowds got to their biggest? He made a break for it. And he ran and he hid himself to be in the presence of his father. The people who just you know, were admiring him because of the gifts that he was giving through the healing, through the miracles, casting out demons, were ready to take him and make him king by force. But when that happened, he walked away from the crowds. Not because he didn't want to be king, nor was that part of God's plan, but he was going to be king on God's terms, which meant necessarily going the way of the cross which is what we're going to talk about in the next couple of weeks with Palm Sunday next week and with Easter Sunday, the Easter Sunday being the fruit of his suffering on Good Friday. He would become king, but he wasn't going to do it at the acclamation of the crowds. He was going to do it at a moment of tremendous loneliness and despair, crying out by himself, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus knew precisely what he was doing in the exercise of his power, and he exercised it in a way that did not immediately bring public praise. And the same Jesus was tempted in the wilderness before his ministry began, tempted with things that you and I struggle with. He was tempted in Gethsemane, thinking, surely this can't be the way, yet not my will but yours be done. This same Jesus who endured temptation was like us in every way and yet without sin is now at the right hand of his Father, interceding with compassion for us because he gets what it's like to struggle in many ways. And this same Jesus who loves you, he gave his life for you, who is pulling for you at the right hand of the Father in heaven, doesn't want to see your life end in disaster. Another lemming, another person falling down the slippery slope of the same temptations that are plaguing everybody. 
Jesus said, choose the narrow path. Most people won't. Choose the narrow path. Wide is the road that leads to destruction, but the narrow path leads to life. Choose life. With Jesus at the right hand of the Father, the Father and Son sending the Spirit to empower us, giving us the gift of community where we can encourage each other to choose the way that leads to life, to protect each other from falling on the path of destruction and going to the beat of a different drummer. And this is the heart of what we want to do and who we want to be as a church when we say we want to be a community shaped by the gospel, a community. We're not on our own as a solo faith venture, but we're holding on to each other, pulling each other back in our weak moments and leaning on each other's strengths toward the way of Jesus, being shaped by the gospel so that together God might take this broken group of people like us, bless us, multiply us, and use us to feed and nourish and bring renewal in the world. Solomon's path and the path of the lemming, the struggles that everybody deals with, does not have to be your forever narrative. And so if you're struggling today, whether it's in one of the categories I mentioned or something else, if you're in need of, of rescue today, God is so gracious. Jesus is so full of mercy towards you. Will you ask him for help? Will you turn to a brother, to a sister, and say, I need you to help bring light to this dark place in my life because I'm following in the path that leads to destruction? Let's pray together. Well, Jesus, sometimes things make a lot of sense in a Sunday morning in a sanctuary. Sometimes our resolve is so strong when we're sitting around people that we love, when we're singing worship songs, when uh, life just feels clear. Yet we walk out these doors, we get in our cars, we drive home, we get in the same habits of thought, of behavior. We find our strength diminished when we're in the face of temptation, but we don't have our brothers and our sisters in Christ at our side. I'm just saying those, those moments to me, I thank you that you know what we're made of, that you know how fickle we can be, how forgetful we can be, how weak we can be, and yet your, your word proves true, that you're not letting us be tempted beyond what we can bear. You're giving us a way out. My prayer for us this morning is that you give us the grace and the courage to take it, to choose it, to resolve for the long haul to be shaped in the way of Jesus to choose to go a different direction, even if that means looking different or behaving different than the people around us. But God, to do this, we need your grace. We need the outpouring of your spirit. Otherwise, we're going to fizzle out as soon as the first failure comes. I pray for people in this room who are stuck in a chronic habit of sin. But as soon as I say it, it's at the top of your mind, and you know you need to repent. The one who's calling you to repent is the one who loves you, who wants things to go well for you. Trust him. As you come to the table today, leave your sin at the cross. Accept his righteousness. Accept the gift of his spirit. For those of us who are discouraged and continuing to choose to do right, there's kind of a high that comes with the initial resolve, but time wears on and those affections that are misaligned with, with, with your standards remain. Pray that you give the grace to endure. And I pray that in our community, Lord Jesus, you would, you would just shape us in such a way that we are resolved to be different, that we uh, train our children to be different and guard them from uh, the destructive paths that we've walked down. And thank you, Lord Jesus, that even in our failure, you continue to show mercy, but we want to, don't want to take this for granted. Thank you that you've exercised your power, Lord Jesus, by laying down your life and offering a new life to us. 
As we share the bread and the juice, may it be for us something so much more. May it be the means by which we experience the loving presence of Jesus Christ, empowering us to follow him. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.